This is section 32 of Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 136, The Prince and the Pauper. During the summer absence, alterations were made in the Hartford home with extensive decorations by Tiffany. The work was not completed when the family returned. Clemens wrote to Charles Warren Stoddard, then in the Sandwich Islands, that the place was full of carpenters and decorators, whereas what they really needed was an incendiary. If the house would only burn down, we would pack up the cubs and fly to the Isles of the Blessed and shut ourselves up in the healing solitudes of the crater of Haleakala and get a good rest, for the males do not intrude there, nor yet the telephone and the telegraph, and after resting we would come down the mountain apiece and board with a godly breech-clouted native, and eat poi and dirt, and give thanks to whom all thanks belong for these privileges, and never housekeep any more. They had acquired more ground. One morning in the spring Mark Twain had looked out of his window, just in time to see a man lift an axe to cut down a tree on the lot which lay between his own and that of his neighbor. He had heard that a house was to be built there, altogether too close to him for comfort and privacy. Leaning out of the window he called sonorously, "'Woodman! Spare that tree!' Then he hurried down, obtained a stay of proceedings, and without delay purchased the lot from the next-door neighbor who owned it, acquiring thereby one hundred feet of extra ground and a greenhouse which occupied it. It was a costly purchase. The owner knew he could demand his own price. He asked and received twelve thousand dollars for the strip. In November Clemens found that he must make another trip to Canada. The Prince and the Pauper was ready for issue and to ensure Canadian copyright the author must cross the line in person. He did not enjoy the prospect of a cold-weather trip to the north, and tried to tempt Howells to go with him, but only succeeded in persuading Osgood, who would do anything or go anywhere, that offered the opportunity for pleasant company and junket. It was by no means an unhappy fortnight. Clemens took a notebook, and there are plenty of items that give reality to that long-ago excursion. He found the Canadian girls so pretty that he records it as a relief now and then to see a plain one. On another page he tells how one night in the hotel a mouse gnawed and kept him awake, and how he got up and hunted for it, hoping to destroy it. He made a rebus picture for the children of this incident in a letter home. We get a glimpse just here of how he was constantly viewing himself as literary material, human material, an example from which some literary aspect or lesson may be drawn. Following the mouse adventure, we find it thus dramatized. Trace Father Brebuff all through this trip, and when I am in a rage and can't endure the mouse, be reading of Brebuff's marvelous endurances and be shamed. And finally, after chasing the bright-eyed rascal several days, and throwing things, and trying to jump on him 
when in my overshoes, he darts away with those same bright eyes, then straightway I read Brebeuf's magnificent martyrdom and turn in, subdued and wondering. By and by the thought occurs to me. Brebeuf, with his good, great heart, would spare even that poor humble mousie, and for his sake so will I. I will throw the trap in the fire, jump out of bed, reach under, fetch out the trap, and find him throttled there, and not two minutes dead. They gave him a dinner in Montreal. Louis Frechette, the Canadian poet, was there, and Clemens addressed him handsomely in the response he made to the speech of welcome. From that moment Frechette never ceased to adore Mark Twain, and visited him soon after the return to Hartford. The Prince and the Pauper was published in England, Canada, Germany, and America early in December 1881. There had been no stint of money, and it was an extremely handsome book. The pen and ink drawings were really charming, and they were lavish as to number. It was an attractive volume from every standpoint, and it was properly dedicated to those good-mannered and agreeable children, Susie and Clara Clemens. The story itself was totally unlike anything that Mark Twain had done before. Enough of its plan and purpose has been given in former chapters to make a synopsis of it unnecessary here. The story of the wandering prince and the pauper king, an impressive picture of ancient legal and regal cruelty, is as fine and consistent a tale as exists in the realm of pure romance. Unlike its great successor, the Yankee at King Arthur's Court, it never sacrifices the allusion to the burlesque, while through it all there runs a delicate vein of humor. Only here and there is there the slightest disillusion, and this mainly in the use of some ultra-modern phrase or word. Mark Twain never did any better writing than some of the splendid scenes in The Prince and the Pauper. The picture of London Bridge, the scene in The Vagabond's Retreat, with its presentation to the little king of the wrongs inflicted by the laws of his realm the episode of the jail where his revelation reaches a climax. These are but a few of the splendid pictures which the chapters portray, while the spectacle of England, acquiring mercy at the hands of two children, a king and a beggar, is one which only genius could create. One might quote here, but to do so without the context would be to sacrifice atmosphere, half the story's charm. How breathlessly interesting is the tale of it, we may imagine that first little audience at Mark Twain's fireside hanging expectant on every paragraph, hungry always for more. Of all Mark Twain's longer works of fiction, it is perhaps the most coherent as to plot, the most carefully thought out, the most perfect as to workmanship. This is not to say that it is his greatest story. Probably time will not give it that rank, but it comes near to being a perfectly constructed story and it has an imperishable charm. It was well received, though not always understood, by the public. The reviewer was so accustomed to looking for the joke in Mark Twain's work that he found it hard to estimate this new product. Some even went so far as to refer to it as one of Mark Twain's big jokes, meaning probably that he had created a chapter in English history with no foundation beyond his fancy. 
of course these things pained the author of the book at one time he had been inclined to publish it anonymously to avert this sort of misunderstanding and sometimes now he regretted not having done so yet there were many gratifying notices the new york herald reviewer gave the new book two columns of finely intelligent appreciation in part he said to those who have followed the career of mark twain his appearance as the author of a charming and noble romance is really no more of a surprise than to see a stately structure risen upon sightly ground owned by an architect of genius with the resources of abundant building material and ample training at command of his capacity they have had no doubt and they rejoice in his taking a step which they felt he was able to take through all his publications may be traced the marks of the path which half led up to this happy height his humor has often been the cloak but not the mask of a sturdy purpose his work has been characterized by a manly love of truth a hatred of humbug and a scorn for cant a genial warmth and whole-souledness a beautiful fancy a fertile imagination and a native feeling for the picturesque and a fine eye for color have afforded the basis of a style which has become more and more plastic and finished and in closing the characters of these two boys twins in spirit will rank with the purest and loveliest creations of child life in the realm of fiction end of chapter one hundred and thirty six the prince and the pauper read by john greenman